pick up your mat and walk to a couple of lame people that he heals, that mat is their story. That mat is their, you know, we'd wonder like, why do you want this dirty, stanky, there's probably feces on the mat from, you know, these lame people sitting on it day after day, year after year. Um, It probably smells horrible. But Jesus says, instead of, hey, leave that behind, you're a new creation, dance forward. He says, hey, pick up your mat and walk. Well, that mat is their story. He wants them to share their story. He wants them to remember, hey, this is who you were before I entered your life, and now this is who you are after. Uh, But I want you to share your story. I've given you these experiences. Satan has intended them for evil. But you're going to come across people that have been in circumstances like this that you're going to the comfort you've been given, you're going to comfort them with. The understanding you've been given, you're going to give to them. The love you've been given, you're going to you know, pay it forward, so to speak, in our you know, new secular terminology. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that'll equip your team and strengthen hope. Welcome, I'm Laura Howe, and on the show today, we are talking with Dr. Carl Benzio, founder of Honey Lake Clinic and medical director of the American Association of Christian Counselors. Now, the first time I met Carl was on a Zoom call, and I was so nervous. I was so nervous because his CV is very impressive and everyone seems to know and like this guy. So I really wanted Tim to like me or at least trust me and for us to to get along. And before our meeting, I was trying to calm my nerves. I was taking a couple deep breaths. I was checking to make sure I didn't have anything in my teeth. And I was at my desk a few minutes early and then click the Zoom call screened on. And here I am facing a man who looks like he just jumped off of the pickleball court. And if you knew Dr. Benzio, you would know that that was actually, there was a really high chance that's exactly what happened. This man was wearing a casual sporty t-shirt, his hat on backwards, and he was super friendly. It was so not what I was expecting. I thought for sure I was going to be meeting this polished business professional who was a doctor or researcher and, you know, head of many different things. But instead, I met this really friendly guy who was clearly, obviously super smart, but he was also very kind and super passionate about the church stepping into the role of being mental health advocates for their community. He can't help but hear the excitement in Carl's voice when he talks about the potential and possibilities that the church has to make an impact on their communities. Carl's best known for as co-founder of Honey Lake Clinic in Florida. This is a residential mental health clinic, and we will learn more about this in the episode, I promise. He also is the medical director of the American Association of Christian Counselors, where he consults and offers training on equipping clinicians and coaches. Carl didn't obviously start out this way. He grew up in Pittsburgh uh, throughout primary school and then moved around a lot around the Upper East Side of the country, but then ended up in New Jersey for high school. He was a really good student, which is so annoying, people who are just naturally good at everything, because he was also a fantastic athlete in baseball and, and sports in general. He's so good that he had opportunities for scholarships. And from a very young age, shockingly, very young age, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with his life. 
Yeah, when I was five, uh, God laid decision making on my heart. So I've always been very interested in decision making and why do people make the decisions they make? Why we do what we do? When you were five, I didn't know that it was a second. Five years old, very interested in decision making. Um, I had a very bad stutter and a lisp, and so I had to go to speech class. And I started school when I was kindergarten, when I was four. So I was put in speech class very early, and I got made fun of a lot. Got hit on the back of the head. Get that word out. I uh, got called names, so bullied a bunch. And um, But as a stutterer, you have to think a lot because there are certain words that you can start your sentences with or you can start talking out of nothing to you know, start a, a discussion. But then there are certain letters you can't that I would very – significantly stammer about and stutter and couldn't get out. So, you know, I would have to think in my head, well, how am I going to say this so that I don't have to use one of those words or one of those consonants that is very difficult for me. So even as a four or five, six-year-old, you're thinking about, so you're in your head a lot as a stutterer. So I think with that, then sort of seeing, well, why are people bullying me? You know, why am I making the decisions I'm making? Why are my parents making the decisions they make? You know, the world was sort of a difficult place at that time. There's sort of like 60s, you know, the wonder years of small town USA. But then there's also this turmoil that's going on in our society at the same time. So God just led decision making on my heart. And I was I didn't come from a medical family, so I didn't really know who that was until I watched I Dream and Genie <laughs> and Bob Newhart and MASH and realized, oh, that's a psychiatrist that helped people with decision making. So we moved around a lot when I was a kid. We moved in, in Pittsburgh. We probably lived in four or five different places. And then um, outside of Pittsburgh, as we bounced around to different states, so you're sort of the new person. Yeah. And so as the new person, you learn how to be a chameleon that can fit in to where they, you know, how do you, how do you make friends? How do you get people to sit with at the, at the lunch table with you? How do you get um, picked for dodgeball, you know, or, you know, on the playground yard and those kind of things. And I was really good in sports. So in, in a certain way that allowed me to have a, an initial connection, but then having to prove yourself or having mm. to connect. And so I developed some real good people skills as sort of reading the room and figuring out, well, who has power, who doesn't have power and how do you connect? And so with that, I think, it just sort of gravitates to being a helper and being a person that people look to and, you know, connect with. You never get to be in that inner circle. So there's always sort of that insecurity or inadequacy inside that not quite being where you want to be in that fully belonging in that space. But you sort of learn how to, um, you know, when I was in high school, whenever we wanted a girl to come out late with us kind of mm-hmm. thing after a party, um, they would say, well, um, I would just say, hey, just let me talk to your parents. And uh, so I get the mother on the phone, it'd be like 11 o'clock, and they go, oh, this is Carl? And he's like, yeah, Mrs. So. And so, you know, she's with me and you know, she's going to be okay. And, you know, we're just going to go to the drive in. We're just going to, you know, watch the movies. We'll go to the diner afterwards and we'll have her home kind of thing. Cause it's a, as a sports, as an athlete, and I was sort of good at, at school kind of <laughs> stuff. So um, I just sort of knew how to read people and figure out, well, what, you know, what do they need to hear for me to be able to um, get their trust or credibility with them? Wow. Do you think that was, I, I'm, I'm still having a hard time getting over you. This started when you were five, my soul, that's young, the, that, that calling and that focus. Do you think that was something that came out of the adversity and the bullying? And like you said, the circumstances of life of moving a lot, or do you think you, you know, God, gifted you or you had that innate skill set you know I don't know maybe it's both what what are you thinking yeah I think it was both I think you know what I do to me is um you know a lot of people like I was just at a church yesterday giving a sermon and people come up afterwards like wow that's 
you know, amazing how you sort of blend those two together and how you help people and how you walk into different spaces with people. How do you hear those stories, um, you know, every day? And, you know, to me, I I think that's what God has gifted me to do. So it's not, I never really got burnt out or burdened, Mm -hmm. you know, with that clinical aspect of things. It's just sort of what I'm wired to do Mm -hmm. when I'm, when I'm good at what he's gifted me. But I think he, you know, those circumstances that I had in my life earlier are sort of what propelled me to be interested in this space as mm-hmm. a, um, as, as me pursuing it, as opposed to maybe somebody saying, Hey, look, God has gifted you this way. You should pursue it. Right. You know, God was kind enough to allow me to sort of explore that and sort of come up with it, you know, on my own, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So I could, um, you know, move in that space sort of unadulterated, so to speak. And, you know, I had a second grade Sunday school teacher. So as I'm you know, looking at decision making, a second grade Sunday school teacher said, Hey, um, if you had a wish, what would you wish for? She asked our Sunday school class. <laughs> and I Dream a Genie was a big show. So we go around the room and say, Hey, if you had a genie, and what would you wish for? Yeah. And I wished for peanut butter milkshakes and baseball cards. That was my favorite thing <laughs> as a second grader. <laughs> I love it. And, uh, you know, she said, well, you know, there's a place in the Bible where God is a genie. And we're all like, what, what are you talking about? And she goes, oh, well, the story of Solomon. And the story of Solomon, uh, God says, hey, Solomon, you got one wish. Yes. What would you wish for? And uh, Solomon wishes for wisdom. And my Sunday school teacher said, or to be a godly decision maker, because he didn't want to know just what the right thing to do is, but he wanted to know the right thing and then the, uh, the ability to execute it, mm. right, to put it into action. And so when she said that, that sort of then capitalized on my interest of decision making, it sort of just oh, wow, that stuff is in the Bible. And this guy, Solomon, now, as I've gotten older, I realized that Solomon came from an incredibly dysfunctional family. You know, David was his father, Bathsheba is his mother. David had at least seven, eight wives, a bunch of concubines. So, you know, we think two stepmothers is a pretty complicated, (laughs) you know, uh, dysfunctional family, but seven. Um, He had a brother that raped a sister, brother that kills a brother, brother that tries to kill dad. So to wish for decision-making skills, which is the way my Sunday school teacher put it, when he could have wished for all this other stuff. And then the very next verse says, and God was pleased and gave him all that other stuff. You know, so that really sort of, you know, impressed on me and doubled down. Hey, look, this is what I'm pursuing. This is for all the marbles. And, you know, it's in the Bible here. So, you know, let's go for it. And then I'm at the age, I'm 61 now that the $6 million man came out when I was like in sixth or seventh grade, somewhere in that time. And so my dad was a computer programmer, was an information technology. So he was giving me computer programming books when I was like, four years old, five years old, Pascal, Fortran, these kind of program. He goes, this is going to, this is like the late sixties. He goes, this is going to be the wave of the future. And I'm just putting them in the, you know, in the back of my closet, you know, under the shoe boxes and, you know, that I have my baseball cards. I was going to say under your baseball cards. (laughs) Yeah. Who who went to, to, you know, who went to read a programming book. (laughs) And so um, whenever the bionic man came out, then I was you know, interested, well, how can we make a bionic brain? Mm. So, you know, he had two bionic legs, a bionic eye, a bionic arm. And, you know, there was really cool stuff back in those days that people laugh at now. Well, that's, you know, that special effect. But back then, those special effects were like really cool. I thought if we could make a bionic brain, we could really figure out decision making, run a bazillion different simulations through it figure out what works, what doesn't. And so when I went to medical school or when I went to undergrad, I went to Duke University to major in biomedical engineering. There were only about five or six biomedical engineering programs in the country at that time. And I really wanted to make that bionic brain whenever I got there and realized, wow, I don't want to be, you know, soldering resistors and capacitors and solenoids and those kind of thing in the lab at two o'clock in the morning. I really like the people aspect right. of dealing with people. Let me just stay in the clinical space as opposed to thinking you can, you know, when you're a kid, you think you can do everything, but you realize quickly that, wow, okay, I got limitations. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is so fascinating. 
So in yesterday, you shared a story where yesterday you were in church and someone mentioned, you know, someone commented, wow, I'm, I, I love how you combined the spiritual and the science together. Um, and, and that might be, you know, you know, five, even five years ago, that was so foreign and 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that wasn't even considered, but that's actually around the same time you started and you started really looking at this. What prompted you? What was kind of the catalyst that was like, you know what, there's something here, there's something integrated and how can we offer care and treatment in an integrated approach? Yeah. So, um, you know, professionally, God has blessed me to be in a bunch of different spaces, do some really cool things in Iraq, Uganda, Kenya, Poland, in the U.S. But personally, we talked about my personal life. We bounced around a lot, moved around. Uh, Well, in high school, that anxiety, depression, not fitting in uh, really led to significant alcohol use. So I developed an alcohol problem uh, with a lot of drinking. I ended up losing a baseball scholarship, ended up losing an Air Force ROTC scholarship at Duke. Um, almost got dishonorably discharged from the military. I got caught cheating on a um, differential equations test at Duke and got had to go in front of the academic review board and got put on academic probation, almost flunked out of school. I just wasn't going to class. I love to play uh, ball and play basketball and party, and that's sort of what I did. Missed a lot of classes. Um, God made me, you know, he gave me the gift of test taking. So I'm just a really good test taker. I can, you know, retest and um, I can absorb information pretty quickly. But, you know, just looking at a test, I'm able to usually pass just not even reading material, just how they structure the test sometimes. Um, So I was able to score well on the MCATs. Um, I didn't get into the schools I wanted. I got on the waiting list at my New Jersey medical school. And two days before the semester started, the registrar's office calls and says, Carl, this is a miracle. I'm like, what do you mean a miracle? She goes, well, we've never gone this low on the waiting list before, but we've gotten down to your number. You know, do you still want to come? And I'm like, oh my gosh, do I ever, I, you know, this is the only thing I've ever wanted to do is be a psychiatrist. And uh, she goes, okay, can you get the money together? I said, yeah, I can get loans. I'll, uh, I'll be able to come. So I get to medical school. And when I got to medical school, I, I sort of realized that all those crappy things and, mistakes and poor judgment I, I had in the past, it still got me to where I want to go. Mm-hmm. So boy, I doubled down and, you know, got worse in what I was doing and my alcoholism and uh, other drug use and other lame excuses and deceitful behaviors continued to escalate to the point in the middle of medical school. Um, I got a DU, uh, DUI and then uh, Super Bowl Sunday, I got arrested for six counts of aggravated assault and ended up in jail. So when I was in jail, I've never heard God's voice, but in my spirit, he spoke to me and said, Carl, you made me your savior when you were a little kid, but you never made me the Lord of your life. Mm-hmm. If you make me the Lord of your life, I'm going to teach you things about decision-making because that's what I've been studying, right? Decision-making. That was my area of interest. So I'm going to teach you things about decision-making. They're going to renew your mind, transform your life, and help you transform other people's lives as well. So when I heard Lord, I heard authority. When I heard authority, I heard author. And when I heard author, I realized that I had always thought that I was the one who was most qualified to write, how does Carl get the most out of life book? <laughs> I loved me more than anybody loved me. I cared for me more than anybody cared for me. I knew me better than anybody. I knew my weaknesses. I knew my sins. Uh, I knew my future. I knew my desires. I knew my hopes. So I was by far the one who was most qualified. And whenever he spoke, he 
you know, was just really impressed upon me that he loves me more than I love me. He cares for me more than I care for me. He knows me better than I know me. He know my, knows my weaknesses. He knows my future. He knows my desires. He knows the plans that he has for me. And he wrote the instruction manual, the B-I-B-L-E, the best instruction book for living every day. So with that, even though I had some good Bible teachers as a kid, I never really heard the Bible taught in a way that helped me apply it to everyday living. Um, it was a great history book. Uh, my parents were into prophecy, so it was about like what's going to happen at the end of times. But, you know, how does it how does it affect the dash of your life? You know, 1963 dash, you know, the day you die. I didn't really pay attention a lot to how the Bible was uh, taught in that kind of way. So um, I when I when I heard Jesus say that to me, I started reading the scriptures and the gospel saying, well, Jesus is a perfect decision maker. Let me study his decisions to figure out, well, what are the key elements of his decision making process to help me learn more about decision making, apply the science that I was learning about decision making psychologically and medically to this biblical element to be able to come together, to be able to help me become a much better decision maker. And as he said, he's going to help me become somebody who can help others with their decision making process. So in that three or four year period of therapy and uh, sort of being in the word, connecting to God, really making him the Lord of my life in so many ways and getting rid of my instruction manual and starting to follow his, it certainly wasn't perfect right out of the chute, but it got progressively better day after day, month after month, year after year. He just started to really show me things about, you know, especially neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and how the science talks about it using one set of terms and vocabulary, but the Bible talks about neuroplasticity using a different set of terms, you know, the reprobate mind, the degenerate mind, the callous mind, the hardened mind, the unrighteous mind, the disobedient mind. That's all terms for uh, neuroplasticity gone the wrong way. (laughs) And then the the righteous mind, the obedient mind, the renewed mind, the transformed mind, uh, you know, the newly clothed mind, that's, you know, neuroplasticity going the correct direction. So there's a story in, you know, in uh, the Gospels where Jesus, Mary and Martha send their messengers to Jesus and say, hey, you know, your our brother Lazarus is sick. He's your buddy. You know, you can come and heal him. Jesus is like, well, I can't. I got stuff to do. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, it's going to be a few days. And they were bummed out. They leave. Lazarus dies. Jesus is late to the party. He gets there, you know, after he's been dead four days. And uh, they're weeping. They're struggling. Um, Jesus weeps. I think he's just sad that they just don't get it yet, who he really is. Um, but he also empathizes with their sadness and their struggle. And then Jesus has him roll back the stone and he says, Lazarus, rise and come forth. And Lazarus rises from the dead. Um, but then the next thing Jesus says is he tells the people next to Lazarus, unbind him. Mm. And because Lazarus had the death wrappings around his head, around mm-hmm. his face, around his eyes, around his body, restricted his perspective, his view, uh, restricted his walk, his freedom, his movement. Um, and so to me, that's just sort of the picture of whenever we're spiritually dead and we accept Christ as our Savior, we're now spiritually alive. We've been raised from the dead. And we're a new creation. Our sin slate is washed clean, but our memory banks aren't washed clean. Nobody ever gets a brain transplant mm-hmm. when they're saved. So they have all this stuff. And so those death wrappings that Lazarus had that he needed unbinding from, we all have psychological baggage that we bring into our new life in Christ. Um, you know, we have psychological baggage that we all need unbinding from. So we, you know, he doesn't tell Lazarus, hey, unbind yourself. He builds us for relationship. He wants us to help unbind each other in the process. 
each person needs to steward what they do with that help that they get. And so that's where as a church, as a church body, you know, we're called to come alongside each other and help each other unbind in the process. Um, but the difficulty people have in unbinding just themselves and helping others is we don't really understand that unconscious space very much. And so this is my passion is I, Victor Frankl, a famous psychiatrist who lived through a couple of different concentration camps he was in as a as a young adult. Um, he has a quote that says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. Mm. In that space is the power to choose our response. And in that response is our growth and our freedom. And so I call that space our essence space, because that essence space between situation and response. And my, what's weird is that the, the decision-making curriculum I developed it spells out the word spears, stimulus, perception, emotions, assessment, response, and summary thoughts. So whenever there's a stimulus and response, those are the two of the, of the six elements I put in my decision-making curriculum. There's this space. And so that space is, I call it the essence space because suke, um, you know, P-S-Y-C-H-E is Greek, meaning spirit or the innermost being or the essence of a person. And so that's the essence of who we are. And so much of that is unconscious yeah. thought. So when we're told to take every thought captive, not just yeah. our conscious thoughts, but our unconscious thoughts as a society in general, but especially as the Christian community, we're not taught very well how to mine and how to understand this unconscious space that we have and how that really drives a lot of our decisions and a lot of our thinking and a lot of our actions. And so even though on Sunday morning, we're like, Jesus, you're number one, God, you're awesome. Holy Spirit, come over me. Um, you know, with our voice, we worship God as our number one, but our decisions you know, when we leave the building till the next Sunday morning, that really reveals, that's our yeah. actual spiritual worship is our decisions. Our decisions reveal, you know, what's really number one in our life. And so, mm. you know, that that growth process over those three or four years, you know, being in jail, you know, to me, it was a huge turning point that sort of pushed me into this. You know, I knew Bible. Um, I knew science, but yet I still was a very poor decision maker. So there's something about one of the, each one by themselves isn't enough. They really need to be integrated. Mm -hmm. We need to understand these truths of the Bible, but then understand the psychological apparatus that God has designed into us. What are those psychological laws and principles that guide neuroplasticity, psychological development, the sanctification process, and how do we put both science and Bible together? To me, that's where we understand our essence space that Paul talks about so eloquently in Romans 7. He says, the good things I want to do, I don't do. The bad things I don't want to do, I do. Woe be me, wretched man that I am. I keep on sinning, even though I know the right thing in my mind, my flesh does the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that passage in Romans 7, he's really, I call it the addict's lament. He's really talking about that unconscious space yeah. and how even Paul, with all his education, with all his walk, he still had trouble understanding this unconscious space, this baggage that we all need unbinding from um, and we all need help with. Yeah. You know, how many times have I or my friends or neighbors, any one of us are are facing a situation or a circumstance or, you know, the consequences of a decision. And we're like, why did I do that? Why did I go down that path? I knew it was wrong. And, you know, when we're hearing about trauma-informed and trauma responses and, and recognizing how, like you said, our past, we don't get a brand new brain. We don't get a, we don't get completely rewired. We still have to work with the, the, <laughs> the equipment that we have and the trauma of our past and our experiences impact that equipment. 
but that doesn't define who we are, nor does it define who we could be. And I love how you're, you know, integrating science and, you know, biology, psychology, and the spiritual biblical principles into, okay, yes, both can be true. You you both can have a trauma experience and you can have a biological, you know, limitation or whatever you have, but that doesn't mean things can't change and something God cannot move in the essence in, 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 in that gap between, um, um, that decision-making process. I love that. Yeah. We're like, we're tripartite beings. You know, God is, you know, God, the father, he's the mind, God, the son, he's the body and the Holy spirit is the spirit. So in that triune God, we're given a representation of spirit, mind, body, and we're made in his image, a spirit, mind, body, but we don't do a very good job of sort of acknowledging those three. And we end up studying them by pulling them out and compartmentalizing them. (laughs) But the triune God doesn't exist in separate. Mm. He exists actually with all three of those integrated together. It's just bewildering to us to understand that. So we sort of pull all three of those beings apart to treat them as sort of separate individuals. And so we do the same thing with ourselves. We treat those three spheres as separate elements. We don't really do a whole lot of depth with them, but when we do, we sort of pull them apart, but they really need to be integrated together, like you were talking about, with profound element. You know, there's a real good example of just what you were saying you know, when we make a decision and a few minutes later, we're like, man, why did I say that? Why did I do that? <laughs> I haven't done you know, that the before. Last Maybe I did that yesterday. I don't know. <laughs> I know. You know, at the last supper, Peter tells, or Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times oh, before God. the cock crows. And Peter says, you're right, Jesus. I'm such a loser. I'm a failure. I'm a screw up. I'm so impulsive. I'm immature. I, you know, I always keep on making these mistakes you know, please just forgive me now. Well, Peter actually doesn't say that. Peter says, Jesus, I would never do that. I would never deny you. In fact, I would lay down my life for you before I do anything like that. So that's what Peter's response was when given, hey, look, here's the situation. Here's the stimulus. Uh, and you're going to get a chance to to sort of um, audition your response and practice it so that you can do it later. Yeah. Right. But Peter totally chokes just a few hours later, yeah. <laughs> and then as, as he walks away, he locks eyes. You know, one of the one of the uh, gospel writers says that he locks eyes with Jesus, and there's that. You know, he just sees Jesus's look, and G- Peter feels so overwhelmed, like that. Boy, what did I do? Did I do? How did I just say that? Yeah. I just had a chance to practice a few hours ago. That man, you're my number one, and then now because of that unconscious, I mean, so quickly, yeah. right? He was asked and. You know, he spits out, well, I think you're mistaking me for somebody else. Or, no, I never saw that guy. Or, yeah, no, it wasn't me. Unconsciously, all this stuff is bubbling forth that he's totally unaware of. And as Christians, we have so many times in our daily activities where yeah. we have the opportunity to, to, to speak for Jesus or to cower. And, or whether it's conflict or how we treat our spouse or how we treat our kids or how we engage in, you know, whatever it is. Whether it's gross things like pornography or whether it's just being sarcastic or dismissive with our kids or spouse. You know, there's where we miss the mark, right? And there's opportunities to do something different. But a lot of that is... Um, is propelled by our unconscious space, that essence space that we don't have a very good, uh, you know, understanding for. And but I think these traumas, these experiences, these stuff. The reason why Jesus doesn't erase them, God doesn't give us a, um, you know, a brain transplant, is because He wants to use these situations in our life to help us grow. But 
whenever he says, pick up your mat and walk to a couple of lame people that he heals, that mat is their story. Mm. That mat is their, you know, we'd wonder like, why do you want this dirty, stanky? There's probably feces on the mat from, you know, these lame people sitting on it day after day, year after year. Um, It probably smells horrible. But Jesus says, instead of, hey, leave that behind, you're a new creation, dance forward. He says, hey, pick up your mat and walk. Well, that matters their story. He wants them to share their story. He wants them to remember, hey, this is who you were before I entered your life, and now this is who you are after. Uh, But I want you to share your story. I've given you these experiences. Satan has intended them for evil. But you're going to come across people that have been in circumstances like this that you're going to the comfort you've been given, you're going to comfort them with. The understanding you've been given, you're going to give to them. The love you've been given, you're going to you know, pay it forward, so to speak, in our in new secular terminology. Yeah. And so as we equip the church in these spaces, you know, everybody in the pews, there's a superpower in the pew that's just waiting to be unleashed. People that have been through traumas, hurts, wounds, losses, uh, mistakes that I've made, mistakes that people made against me. There's all those different things that God wants to utilize. Satan wants to beat us down with those shame, guilt, embarrassment, whatever, let's hide them, as opposed to, no, you know, it took a long time for me to share my story with people openly, but whenever I did, I was sharing my great curriculum that I have, and afterwards, nobody wanted to talk about my curriculum, <laughs> everybody wanted to ask me about my story, story. right, because that's what really connected, and, yeah. you know, the understanding of, hey, the scientist, but this faith thing, and this Jesus freak, how does he do, why would he ever, you know, do these things, and you know, I said, well, my curriculum works. They go, well, how do you know? It's like, well, we used it at a bunch of different treatment facilities. Well, how do you know it works? What's the research? It's like, finally, God pressed on me say, just share your story of how it worked in you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And that's all they wanted to talk yeah. about. They didn't want to really hear about my really cool curriculum because <laughs> I developed. <laughs> you know, they just wanted to hear about the story and how this, how science and faith really comes together yeah. in a cool way. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad because God is definitely using you in, in many avenues. Um, and, and speaking of curriculums, you, you're engaged in a number of different activities, one of those being uh, with the AACC where you're developing training so that you're equipping, what do you call them, behavioral health coaches? Is that what the, the language is used? Mental health coach, first responder. Mental health coach. Thank you for that. So mental health coach, first responder, you're training, like you said, the superpower in the pews, the the people who have lived experience, who have stories, who have overcome, who have built resilience, who are able to relate and come alongside others, that you're, you're training and equipping those and you're informing and advising and consulting and and doing much of the training with the AACC in, in, in that work. Is that correct? Or, or am I overstepping that? Well, you're overstepping. I don't oh, do all okay. the training. I, I, you know, I, I have some modules, but we have experts from yes. around the country in the in different spaces. So there might be, say, you know, in the mental health coach first responder, there's maybe 42 yes. hours. So there's 42 modules, and I do some of them, and many other people in their areas of expertise we call upon to, uh, you know, to breathe, you know, uh, Bible and psychological sciences and how to integrate them together. So there's a bunch of really cool people. So you know, in the space that I'm in, I have. I started a treatment center, Honey Lake yes. Clinic. So we're a residential facility. So for people that need a residential facility, I wanted to develop something to, that brings faith and science together for the most complex, mm-hmm. difficult cases. But you know, my passion is really to have the church be that psycho-spiritual ER that people go to when they're struggling because there's a huge window of 
of opportunity when somebody has a psychological struggle. They're looking for answers, and there's a great opportunity for the church. We have the truth. We have the healing power you know, that's been given us through the word and relationship with God through Christ to be able to impart. And they're giving us opportunity to speak into their mm-hmm. life. And so just like if you were going to an ER, you're not expecting to see the 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 heart surgeon as soon as you walk in or the plastic surgeon uh, when you walk in the door. But you are expected to see somebody who can take some information, who can take some history, who can take some vital signs and take some initial data and then figure out, well, who needs to come next? And so uh, we're looking, the mental health coach first responder program is that first responder. How do we, uh, you know, that good Samaritan who just comes across a hurting person, what are some basic skills that individual can have to be able to engage connect, listening skills, um, triage, a little de-escalation sometimes if a person's ramping up. And then, well, how do we refer? What are the, how do we triage the situation, find out well, what's the best referral? Do they need to go to a residential facility? Mm-hmm. Do they need to go get detox? Um, do they need an inpatient unit? Do they need an outpatient therapist? Do they need a recovery group? Do they need coaching? Do they need a mentor? Um, you know, what are the different resources, whether within the church, if the church is next door in the community um, that are available for an individual based on what that level of struggle is? You know, in the, in the medical community, me as a physician, you know, we didn't have enough doctors and we had a bunch of people that needed help. Mm -hmm. So we developed an extender system. So we developed a nurse practitioners, physician's assistant, nurse anesthetist, you know, uh, physical therapist, people in that in-between space between professional and layperson or patient. Well, the church has pastors and it has clinicians and it has people in the pew that are struggling. And there's way more people in the pew struggling than there are professionals and clinicians and pastors to take care of that need. So this was sort of the effort, uh, the AACC and other organizations. Well, how do we, how do we fill in the gap? How do we sort of build up that extender system to be able to help people connect with some people? And that's where people in the pews that have been through struggles, have been through their own difficulties, have have experienced tremendous healing, they want to help. Mm-hmm. They want to give back. They want to share that with other people and the excitement and the, <laughs> and, you know, and the power that they now have, but they don't want to go to eight years of medical school and residency yeah, no or, thanks. you know, six years <laughs> of being a psychologist or, you know, three years of whether it's undergrad and then, you know, a master's level degree, but they can do 10 hours, 20 hours, 40 hours of training to equip yes. them to be on that front line and to have an amazing opportunity to be used by God, partner with, by, you know, to, with God to offer their fish and loaves and see God's economy. He's a great multiplier of just a little that we, you know, that we offer back to him. Mm. It's so good. I love that you have both ends of the spectrum, that you're engaged in equipping on both ends in, in, you know, the front lines where people are coming to their community looking for support. You're equipping and, and, you know, an advocate of the, the first responder mental health coach and first responders coaching training that the AACC has, but you also have the inpatient for, for, for those who have significant issues that, you know, I often say it's, you know, the impact impacting multiple areas to a point where it's detrimental. Like they are declining or it's, you know, people are not able to work or care for themselves or, you know, there's lots of different ways to triage it, but, you know, you have the, 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 
front lines, and then you also have the inpatient clinical support. So you, the church has a role to play in that whole spectrum of care, whether they're the person side-by-side praying with them, whether they're providing pastoral care, whether they're, you know, referring out to a therapist, local therapist, or, or referring out and, and supporting someone as they go to inpatient. Like there's, you're able to integrate mental health and faith through the whole spectrum, that it's not separate. I love that. Yeah. And Honey Lake Clinic is, uh, so there's inpatient, which is sort of a locked inpatient unit. That's not us. So we're not a locked inpatient unit. We're residential. Resident. So, we're oh, sort okay. of in that. so let, what's the difference between? Yeah. So, so inpatient is a locked, usually it's a locked unit for people that are really acutely either psychotic, suicidal. They really are having difficulty with safety mm-hmm. and they need a locked inpatient unit. And a locked inpatient unit, you're allowed to put hands on people. You're allowed to restrain them physically or with, you know, straight jackets and restraints, and you're allowed to give medications against their will, and you're allowed to put them on commitment, so they might be committed there against their will on whatever each right. state has their own sort of commitment policy for three, five, seven days. And that's days. often seen in hospitals rather than what you're talking it, it, about. Honey Lake correct. is different it's a, than that. It's an acute hospital situation. Yeah, it's acute hospital situation. So Honey Lake Clinic is either diversionary to help people before they get to that level of compromise, or if Excellent. a person has been stabilized for three, five days in an inpatient unit, now they're stepped down to a Honey Lake Clinic. And so yes. we're like in the in an addiction model, there's acute detox for like three to five, seven days. And then there's rehab for 30 to 90 days. So just like for acute psych, there's acute inpatient psychiatric hospitalization for three to five days. That's sort of similar to a detox mm-hmm. situation. And then there's Honey Lake Clinic, which is a residential situation for 30 to 70 days. Our adolescents are there about 90 days. And our adolescent program, adults usually about 35 to 50 days. So you can have that intensive six hours a day therapy. Usually when people are on an inpatient unit, they just don't have capacity to take in a lot of that, what we're talking about in that unconscious space and psychodynamic therapy and dealing with trauma. They just need to be stabilized and let's keep them safe first. Mm-hmm. And then once they're stabilized, then we can start do some digging at Honey Lake Clinic. That person is stabilized enough that we can start doing some digging with that person and bring that spiritual, that psychological, that sort of brain chemistry, all those three spheres together with depth because now they have capacity to take in information and practice new skills, work with their therapist, open up and really get to the the foundation and and bear the cracks of who they are. So that's where, you know, as you you know, as we bring the body of Christ together, Honey Lake Clinic couldn't exist without a bunch of different expertises and, you know, EMDR, TMS, uh, pastors, um, nurses, nurse practitioners, techs, we have equine therapy. So it's bringing together Christians in all these different spaces. And I think, you know, part of my passion and your passion is, you know, how do we bring the body of Christ together more? So we have, instead of operating in silos, we can put together some very novel treatment opportunities, both in the church and in the community and in places like Honey Lake Clinic, where we bring people from all over the country and all over the missionaries from all over the world come to get treatment because we're out of our silos mm. and we're collaborating and we're seeing how God is sort of orchestrating you know, this really cool um, healing opportunity. To me, I believe Jesus started a behavioral health revolution yeah, to heal the brokenhearted, set the captives yes. free, uh, give us abundant life. And we're called to continue that behavioral health revolution he started, but we do it best whenever we don't just fight all by ourselves, whenever we sort of come together as these special forces 
especially trained forces, well, how do we come together to be able to create very novel and unique treatment opportunities for people to engage at the local level, regional level, and national mm. level? That's what, that's what really excites yeah. me is being part of those kind of conversations and helping organizations sort of move into those spaces to do things that they might not have thought was really possible just on their own. Yeah. Yeah, and I love how Honey Lake, Honey Lake is so unique because there's not a lot in the country. I don't. I definitely know there's nothing in Canada, no. and and so if a church is looking, okay, how can we triage and elevate someone's care? People come from all over the world to Honey Lake because it is so unique. It it is what 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 I know as the the term interdisciplinary. Like, there's a lot of different skill sets and specialties. And so um if you're if you're a ministry leader, you definitely want to bookmark Honey Lake on what's the what's the website? Honeylake.clinic. Honeylake.clinic. You definitely want to bookmark that and put this. Or just Google Honeylake Clinic. There you go. You'll get it. I definitely want to bookmark that and make sure you put that onto your resources so that for when you share with people, I can't tell you how many people ask me, you know, what is there? Do you know a Christian therapist in this area? Do you know a Christian, you know, um, residential center or hospital or different things like that? And so this really is a great place for you to be able to refer people to. Um, uh, all across North America, and you said even the world for those who are working cross culturally and things. That's awesome. Yeah, we have yeah you know, we have missionaries around the world that uh, and mission agencies that have people placed, and you know they'll either experience trauma where they are, or maybe they had an addiction issue in their younger life. They became saved. They go to the mission field, but now because of the the difficulties, the yeah. strife, they're out of their comfort zone. Maybe their addiction gets ramped up again or their depression yeah. comes back and they need to come back to the States. We wish that there was Christian treatment around the world, but unfortunately there amazing. isn't. So, uh, yeah. So the mission agency brings them back to, you know, and we treat them at Honey Wonderful. Lake Clinic. Um, there's some other PHP programs or IOP programs in the U.S. that are Christian, but we're one of the few that are residential on site mm-hmm. that integrates all these three things with depth and has psychiatry actively involved in it. Beautiful. Beautiful. So my question for you is knowing what you know today, you know, the, the, how the Lord is working and transformed your life. If you can take what you know today and send yourself a voicemail or write yourself an email or letter, what would you, what would you say to your younger self knowing what you know today? Boy, yeah, you know, um, be a long letter. (laughs) Or maybe not. You know, first of all, you know, first of all, like almost like the screw tape letters, you know, yeah. I hate when Satan, I'm a competitor. I, you know, I love pickleball. I know we talked yes, to play with your husband, pickleball. Um, I love ball sports. I was really good at ball sports and did things on a national level at a, at a young age. I hate when Satan wins anything. Mm. I really hate when Satan wins anything. And there's so many battles for people's minds, um, you know, and the little decisions that we have and obviously in bigger decisions. And, um, you know, one thing I would I would tell myself is to be aware that Satan is not Satan is not invisible. Satan has a strategy and uses that strategy for everybody. Satan is incredibly gifted. And when you think of it, um, the angels were in heaven. They had everything that they wanted. They were in God's presence with God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. But he convinced one third of them to leave. Mm. One third of them he convinced to leave. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty persuasive. That's pretty powerful. So to think that I could, you know, as a eight year old, ten year old, fifteen year old, eighteen year old, twenty three year old, think that I'm I'm shrewd enough, I'm bright enough, 
I'm equipped enough to, on my own, see what his machinations are, what his strategy and um, all the promises that he has are so empty. Mm. But I, I believed him. I, I thought you could have peace, that you could have power, that you could have prestige, you could have attention, you could have a belonging. You could do that all on your own in the system that Satan was providing me and leaving God out of that mix. And um, I think that people just don't recognize how evil and how destructive are those um, detours that Satan takes us off of God's, the path that God has for us that, um, and those detours, he offers everything that God offers. um, But here you can get it easier or you can get it quicker. Mm. And all those detours all lead to destruction. Mm. They all lead to difficulty, pain and loss. And um, I would just uh, tell myself to be uh, more strategic and how I do things and more thoughtful. And I thought I was a fairly thoughtful person and a, you know, and a thinker and an analyzer, but it was all about me centeredness, not about God and realizing that, you know, God isn't a distant God. I used to think that he was in the middle East and he was doing like big things over there, but really didn't, I wasn't that important of an issue for him to be involved with me. Mm -hmm. So I had to seek out other um, people to be involved with or to belong to. And uh, just to know that you belong to God. He loves you. He cares for you more than anything. Mm. He wants the best for you. He is gifted for you. He has a great comeback story for everybody and wants us to walk in that. Um, and he has incredible blessing. And Satan only has steal, kill, and destroy, only has destruction and is, you know, is a liar. And um, there's so many lies. And, uh, you know, I just fell for his strategy so many times. And it's just pathetic. Um, you know, what I was doing, but that would probably be the the biggest thing. Um, and then, you know, the instruction manual yeah. uh, thing that, you know, Hey, you know, none <laughs> of us are qualified to write our own instruction manuals. Um, you know, he has the instruction manual and to, to read the Bible, um, with psychological lenses. So to, as you mm. read the different stories in the Bible to, you know, do a little psychological autopsy on, well, why did Peter deny Jesus? Like what would be going through his head that he would right. do that or Judas betray or David or Samson or, you know, Shet, when, I, when I was a little kid, my last name is Benzio. And so my dad would say, Hey, we're in the Bible. I'm like, what do you mean we're in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, there's Benzio's in the Bible. He said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abenzio. And, <laughs> That's um, so cute. But those are th- but those were three really cool characters. And, yeah. um, you know, just even when they said, you know, even if even if he didn't deliver us, even if he didn't mm. deliver us, we would still love him and honor him. And so there's these – well, why would they say that? Why would they do that? Let's unpack psychologically. You know, the Bible is this incredible psychological textbook with all these incredible psychological principles and stories and characters that reveal so much psychological depth. I would have loved to have read it that way when I was a kid yeah. and have somebody read it to me that way. And so that's what I try to reveal to our kids is, hey, you know, our our kids are because their dad's a psychiatrist, they're interested in these psychological <laughs> things. But hey, this book is a really cool psychological book. I would have I wish instead of being 30 and digging into it as a psychological book, I would have done that as a teenager or yes. young adult. I think it would have been really cool yeah. to unpack both professionally. I think it would have, you know, not wasted so much of my professional time mm-hmm. um, in ungodly pursuits, but personally it would certainly have saved a lot of hurt and turmoil and mm-hmm. loss in my life too. It's good. It's good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Carl Benzio for, for joining us on the care ministry podcast. Appreciate your work, value your work. And I'm so grateful to call you a friend. Very much so. Thank you, Laura. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening. One of my favorite moments from this episode is when Carl was describing how Jesus told the newly healed people to pick up their mats and walk. And he was sharing how this is like an analogy of how God redeems people's stories, that not everything is to be forgotten and pushed into the background, that you're to walk as a new creation, but that your story and where you've come from matters. And I love how open and candid Carl, Dr. Carl, is about his own story. So often we see these professionals and authors and doctors and organizational leaders and think that they have it all together. And lo and behold, they are people just like you and me, who've struggled, who've suffered, and who have learned and grew resilient as a result. If you are interested in Honey Lake or the mental health coaching that Dr. Benzio referenced, please make sure you scroll down to the show notes and click the links there. Thank you so much for listening. I am so grateful for you once again. Man, you are amazing. I so value your hard work and service to your people, to your community, to your church. Praying for you and God bless. All right, take care.